and welcome to Poco Ponders. I'm your host, Sarah Poco, and today we are pondering the science of gross. Now, this was inspired by the science of cute, a study done by researchers to determine what exactly cute means and why we find something cute. Now, the concept was first introduced in the early 70s by Conrad Lawrence, an Austrian zoologist who observed that certain facial and body features like smaller snouts and chins, higher foreheads and larger eyes are, are characteristically cute and motivate us to care for them. Um, gross things, on the other hand, trigger the opposite response. We don't want to be around it. We don't want anything to do with it. We want it out of the house. Um, however, just like cute things, gross things, gross things trigger an automatic psychological response. You know, we just don't stand there and ask ourselves, does sewage actually smell bad or is it just me? No, we have a, an immediate response to clench our noses or maybe gag and try to get away from it. Um, both of these responses are evolutionary in the sense that we need to care, we feel the need to care for cute things like babies to ensure the continuation of our species. And we feel the need to stay away from gross things um, because um, it's a way to avoid poisonous and potentially dangerous situations. That being said, what we consider gross is subjective. For example, I love cinnamon raisin bread. Uh, my sister finds it disgusting. And she said, and I quote, only those without a soul eat raisin bread, uh, which which was a bit extreme, but you know, she finds it gross. Um, it's also the pineapple on pizza debate, where some find it off-putting, but others love that sweet and savory taste. Um, our guest today is an assistant professor and medical sociologist from Dalhousie University, who is here to tell us more about how the concept of grossness has evolved and how it translates across cultures today. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Michael Haplin, for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. So, in your opinion, what is the meaning of gross? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting because in your introduction, you you pointed to the, the psychological research on this, which is uh, disgusting. The response to what's gross, disgust, is a really universal human emotion. It's one of our primary emotions. Uh, people across different cultures make the same uh, facial response to things that they find that are disgusting. In sociology, we we uh, move away from what the kind of universal features of, of what's gross and what's disgusting, and we're more interested in the the social context of what's gross and the variability in grossness, or what's disgusting. One of probably the most interesting studies here was done in the early 20th century by a, a guy named Norbert Elias, who wrote this big, huge book called The Civilizing Process, part of which dealt with what is gross and what's disgusting. And one of the things that he found, he was looking at etiquette manuals. And he was what he found looking at those etiquette manuals is that the the advice to be non-gross, non-disgusting, to be proper in society uh, has changed a lot over uh, the two or three hundred years that he was looking at the data. Uh, so he looked at etiquette manuals because the idea here is that if you write it in an etiquette manual, you have to tell someone not to do it. So one of the things that he found was surprising is that there was advice telling people not to blow their nose on a tablecloth during dinner not to pick their nose during dinner, not to defecate in public. And so the interesting thing is like, there was a point in time that you had to write that down and give that advice to people uh, and tell people to take that advice. And those were the types of what we think now very gross and disgusting things uh, that people were doing pretty regularly out in public. Okay. Oh, I find it interesting that someone had to write it down. Hey, don't take a poop in public. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's um, it's one of the reasons that we we bring that that content to undergrads because it's so counterfactual that you think you would you would never think that you have to tell someone uh, not to do 
a variety of things involving body fluid in front of other people. Uh, but there was long periods of time that that was totally normative and there wasn't the same uh, response of repugnance or disgust towards that. It's something that in sociological terms we had to be socialized to. Uh, so you learn that these things are disgusting uh, because of how people react to you, uh, how they respond to what you're doing. But also like as a group that's changing over time. And his argument was that this started uh, what was the proper way to act started in French uh, court culture, like the aristocratic court society. They would do something, they would develop a new manner or mas mannerism. Um, so no more blowing your nose on the tablecloth at, at King Louis court or whatever. And that, that would diffuse down to people who were of lower and lower classes, uh, uh, social classes, until it became nor more normal behavior. And people who didn't do those types of behaviors would be reacted to with, with kind of disgust and, and repugnance. All right. So as I mentioned, you know, there's also there's an evolutionary aspect to, you know, why we find this gross. But, you know, I do want to have your expert opinion. Uh, maybe you could tell us more about that. Why do we as human beings find things gross? Yeah, I mean, there, there there's a lot of ideas here. And it really depends on on the discipline that you talk to. So if you, you brought someone on uh, the show who was an evolutionary psychologist or a social psychologist or a neuroscience scientist, they'd have different explanations for that than like a sociologist or an anthropologist would. Because um, there's usually more than one answer to, to these types of questions and it depends how and where and why you're looking at what you're looking at. So for um, anyone taking a biological approach, what we find disgusting on a kind of very general human level, the answer to that is, you know, the things that we find disgusting are usually things that can cause us uh, some sort of harm in some way, shape or form. So to give you an example, before the interview started, uh, we were talking about the, the merits, the pros and cons of warm milk in cereal. And so one of the reasons that I might find that disgusting is because I associate warm milk with milk that's been spoiled or milk that's gone bad. And so uh -huh. tasting that, I know that that's milk that can possibly harm me or get me sick. And so I find it disgusting. Same way that we might react to uh, um, like an uh, open wound that's been affected, infected, like that's something that can be contagious to us. You brought up the idea of sewers that we have these res this kind of response to those smells and the sights of sewers because those are also areas that are um, just filled with pathogens that could be damaging to us. So the, the kind of universal um, um, kind of gut response to why many of these things are gross uh, would evolve, you know, on a biological level, keeping yourself safe as an organism. And then from a, like a sociological or an anthropological, if you talk to one of my colleagues in anthropology, um, from those perspectives, we're, we're more interested in what's why is what's gross so selective? So, so there's some things uh, that probably almost all of us find disgusting, but there's also a ton of variability in what's disgusting and what's gross. So those are the, the types of questions that we're really interested in in, in sociology, uh, in the social sciences. You know, you can think of things like, like uh, in and of themselves, the idea of eating snails like escargot sounds to many people, if you brought it up out of context, super disgusting and super gross. And many people would elect not to do that. Uh, but at the same time, it's been associated with like high class and high status. And it's so far away from being gross in those settings um, that that's more of like a, a, a social process at work than, than the kind of general human biological 
uh, reaction to, to what you see that might be disgusting, like an open wound or like a, a very messy sewer or toilet. All right. So what happens to our bodies when we experience disgust? Yeah, so I mean, that's that probably is a better question for for someone who's in, like, say, the neurosciences uh, than myself. <clears throat> the it would really depend on on the type of disgust that you're encountering. That the the disgust that, that you're mentioning at the top of the show, it would be like a, a physio physiological response, not different from the fight or flight response. So that you see something that's very disgusting, very gross, and your your physiological response is to treat that as like an emergency or a panic situation and to avoid being around uh, the thing that you're disgusted by as much as possible and as quickly as possible. All right. So... Um, how has grossness evolved? You know, as I mentioned, you know, the evolutionary aspect, um, but there's also a historical aspect where what we find gross today may not have been considered gross a hundred years ago. Uh, for example, spittoons, they've been, they were around from as early as the 14th century all the way to um, the 1900s, but they're not as commonplace today. So could you shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, that's um, exactly what I have in mind when I was talking about Norbert or Elias' work from, from a little bit earlier on. <clears throat> These ideas that we have about grossness really do change and evolve, uh, sometimes over a long period of time and sometimes over a very short period of time. Your spittoon example is a great example, right? Like something that would be very commonplace, uh, you know, several decades ago. Uh, in fact, having it there would be... Uh, would be in itself something that is more sanitary is much better than like people just spitting on the floor or whatever they're doing not unlike what we do with cigarettes now where you know 20 30 years ago you put your cigarette out wherever you finish smoking it and now there's all these tubes everywhere in halifax that you can neatly deposit your cigarette in i wouldn't be surprised if in 10 15 years people also find those tubes disgusting um so the idea, at least in sociology, is a lot of this is tied to your ability to exercise self-restraint or self-control. And so a lot of the things that we find to be gross are, are things that violate uh, this approach to self-control. So spitting in a spittoon would be gross because you're not supposed to spit in other people. If you need to spit something out of your mouth, you go maybe into a bathroom, you go outside, you go someplace that you're not observed, and that's where you do it. Um, similarly, the examples that I brought up before, like blowing your nose on a tablecloth or defecating on the street, those are also failures in, in self-control and your ability to police yourself. And that's part of why sociologists would argue that they're so gross. You're supposed to go do those things in private circumstances. And the interesting thing about this approach is, you know, you're interested in how these things change and evolve. And, and one of the things about changing and evolving, we can talk about what happened previously, you know, the idea that spittoons uh, were probably sanit very sanitary, sanitary at one point, and now they're, they are gross. Like, I think everyone would react to them as being super gross if they saw one now. Um, but we can think about similar things going forward. So, you know, you, you can think about the idea, like, after COVID-19, uh, the idea of not wearing a mask in public when you're sick, that might be gross. And it might signal, it might be the same as like sneezing without covering covering your mouth when you sneeze. It might be on par with that. Because the idea that we wear this mask uh, to protect other people from pathogens. And if you don't wear that mask, it's a failure in like your self-restraint, your, your orientation, uh, your respect for those around you. Um, and so it, it marks you as gross, that you're, you're just spreading germs if you don't have this mask around. So it would be one of the interesting predictions out of 
out of this theory is that, you know, maybe by 2023, people who have colds or flus, if they're coming to work, that might be gross. And if they're coming to work without a mask, that could be very gross. Interesting. All right. It's, it's interesting that you brought up, you know, being observed by others, um, doing things that are supposed to be private. And um, the way I see it, you know, these are very human things to do, you know, whether it's, you know, farting or spitting or anything. So why is there, how will I say, why is there a need for society or like you know, polite society um, to frown upon this sort of things? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's like a dissertation question in many ways. <laughs> you, know, like, you could write books trying to answer that question. And people have written books trying to answer that question. Um, one of the ideas is that society, um, comp complex, complicated, like societies, societies with many people, they move in the direction of increased social control, increased self-monitoring, increased self-control. And so part of the reason that these things are found to be gross is because they're, they're signaling that you're a person who can't follow rules, who can't orientate to the concerns of others, uh, who doesn't accept rules and guidances, kind of controlling what we find gross and what we find enjoyable. Uh, the theme in it is that it moves us towards uh, being more more social, more self-controlled, more able to function in, in complex societies, more able to function in organizations, more able to uh, exercise self-control and self-agency, which makes us better at participating in the economy, better workers, more predictable, uh, things like that. That's really interesting. And uh, speaking of people, you know, there is a cultural aspect to um, what we find gross. For example, like, uh, what we might find gross here in Canada might not be considered gross in Korea. And one example, uh, speaking of escargots as well, um, in my home country, Nigeria, we eat uh, what we call West African land snails as a delicacy. And now for okay. those watching or listening, go Google it. Um, they're huge and could probably take on the rock in a fight. Um, however, <laughs> however, when I brought it up to my colleagues, they were disturbed by it. Uh, so could you please shed a bit of light as to you know the cultural aspects of grossness? Yeah, um, you know, the, from a sociological approach, like a, uh, one of my anthropologist colleagues could probably talk about this for like four hours, but from a sociological approach, um, the, these things of taste and gross between cultures uh, in many ways are about social exclusion and social closure and stigma. Um, so you think like, you know, the when people are reacting to, say, like a newcomer to Canada, they're reacting to... to um, their their diet, things that they might eat, things that things that might be delicacies where they're from, um, they're reacting to that with with revulsion. Part of that is about pushing other people away, and it's drawing social boundaries. So part of that is the process of of stigma and social exclusion, uh, marking what other people what they're what they're doing is different, and then these people themselves as being different or being outsiders, and you raise a great example with land snails. There's many many other foods that are kind of anchor points for setting other people as being different from from yourself uh i'm part scottish and one of the things that people always talk about with scottish people being weird and different is consuming haggis uh which is you know like a sheep's stomach with other parts of sheep cooked up in it which i also find very gross to hear about and i tried once and it just tastes like anything uh <laughs> but it is in as an idea it's super gross um so that would be part of the, the sociological argument is that it, it it's about dividing lines as well, too. And it, not just food, you can think in terms of like not just culture as well, too, but subcultures. 
You could think about things that people find desirable or they find erotic, uh, sexual practices that people engage in, that those things are about marking people as different. And part of my feeling gross or disgust with what you're doing is signifying that there is this difference between me and you or my culture and your culture. All right. So if there is a, um, you mentioned that, you know, it's a, it's like marking things as different, right? So would you think that grossness today is more about the environment and less about, you know, the psych- psychology? Yeah, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so I'm like a thousand percent biased. By, by <laughs> but I think I think it's I mean, we get this question a lot. I think whether you're in like neuroscience or sociology, is it genes or in the environment? Is it the context? Uh, is it the context or is it biology? And I think when we're set up as disciplines or as fields, we study it in one way. So a neuroscientist is going to look at cute aggression and they're going to look at it in terms of what's going on in the brain because that's what neuroscientists are trained to do and that's what they do. Um, But I think for the vast majority of these things that it's a combination of, of various factors at work. So when we're talking about grossness and disgust, um, I mentioned at the beginning that that disgust is a really, really general human reaction. So you can go, like evolutionary psychologists have done this, they've gone to various different cultures and people are very consistent in showing that they're disgusted and they make the same face. I probably made it actually during this interview of like, eh. So we make, we most of us even make the same face when we're disgusted. So in that sense, like there's, there's definitely like something very psychological There's something very uh, general. It unites us as a species, you might say. I would not be surprised if if you look at uh, some, say, primates and you found similar disgust reactions as well, too. So there's definitely that component. There's another component where if disgust is is this thing, this this thing that we have a capacity uh, to feel as humans, the question that people who who approach it from the social scientists sciences are interested in is like is to what extent does context vary what we think is disgusting so your land snail um example is great right there's nothing inherently disgusting about the land snail uh you go to one country and that that might be a delicacy it might be like a great friday night to eat those land snails they maybe they taste terrific if if you're used to eating them and you go to another country and you know you you prepared that or you tried to serve it to somebody and they would be the, like very offended maybe never call you back i think it's very disgusting so so the the biological thing there the psychological thing there is not so so informative about the the difference uh between one thing being acceptable and good and maybe even a delicacy in one in one context and being super gross in another context um caviar is also another great example so you can think about caviar is, you know, they, they catch a fish in a very certain particular place in Europe, because of course it's connected to European tastes as well too. And they, they massage the fish alive to get it to release eggs. And then they release the fish back. And then, you know, you eat the eggs with a, a, a spoon that's mother of pearl, so it doesn't taste the taint the, cha- the taste. If you listen about that and you watch that process, I imagine most people would think it was super gross. Like I, I think hearing about, I've never tried caviar and I think having heard about it, it sounds absolutely disgusting. But it's the, the height of, of kind of um, like bourgeoisie culture in like old Europe. It's it's super exclusive. It marks, it marks you as being exclusive and upper class yourself. So 
the the grossness of it is kind of offset by the fact that it's something that people who are very highly regarded and have a lot of status that they do and so because they have high status they mark it as a high status act and that thing even though i think if you brought it to a neutral observer it might be pretty gross uh it doesn't get marked as gross or disgusting hmm. that's interesting okay well i didn't know that caviar was made like that uh so yeah yeah <laughs> So if there's any fish masseuse uh, watching this, we are totally judging you. <laughs> yeah, well, the fish are so, so prized for for the egg production that they won't kill them for the eggs. So they keep them alive. So they got to massage them. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, caviar isn't cheap, so it's worth it to keep the fish alive. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what do you personally find as gross? Yeah, so I, I knew you were going to ask this question and I thought about <laughs> it. <and laughs> I'm I'm like a, almost a bad response for this because I'm a new parent. Uh, I have a two-year-old daughter, so what I would have found gross, uh, you know, four years ago, I definitely have been desensitized to. And in part of my research, I study uh, people who are incels or involuntary celibate in the alt-right, and there's a lot of gross things uh, that they talk about online and on their websites. So I feel like. A lot of my, my maybe getting back more to the psychological argument, a lot of what I find to be gross has been very desensitized. That said, I will I will say that my wife enjoys uh, ketchup with scrambled eggs, and I just, I can't even watch her eat, eat ketchup with scrambled eggs. I can't oh. watch her put the ketchup on it. It just triggers something in me. I find it super, she loves it. So again, like this component, like I'm definitely having a physiological reaction. I uh, can't even bear to look at it. Uh, but she loves it and you know, we're we're happily married. So <laughs> So probably something environmental going on there. In your opinion, how do you think the pandemic has shaped what we see as gross? You mentioned, you know, the masks, washing of hands. Um is there is there anything else you can think of? Yeah, I I think the really interesting thing about the pandemic is is not what's happened so far, but what social life will look like in a year or two. So I think that there's there's going to be big changes to how we view sanitation. Like it was this is a gross story actually. So oh. I'm a I'm a professor at a university. Like I've gone to the bathroom, the, the men's room in the university, there's toilet stalls because there's urinals in a men's bathroom. The toilet stalls are usually when people go to, you know, defecate. Um and I've seen multiple times men come out of there and not wash their hands and Aww. leave so that's gross, like very gross now. And I think post-pandemic, that level of kind of uh, inattention to public hygiene will be something that people are, are much more proactive about commenting on and that there will probably be more feedback about not behaving or acting that way in public. Same thing, you know, I think people try to sneeze into their hands, but a lot of people sneeze out into the air, that that might be the type of thing that gets, gets uh, public comments. I would not be surprised if after the pandemic is over <clears throat> that where we used to stand in relation to each other, uh, it remains a bit expanded. So not not like the the six feet that they're they're asking us to do for a pandemic, but I'd be very surprised if we went back to standing as close um, to people as we were before, because I think that that might feel like a little bit dirty and gross to have someone kind of breathing that close to you, breathing on you. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing I think with masks is that <clears throat> you could see masks as being, being a hygiene tool that you absolutely expect other people to abide by that, that if, 
you are sick, even if you have seasonal allergies or something, you're putting a mask on because you don't want people to think that you're contagious. The other interesting possibility would be that the mask itself gets marked as something that makes you look ill or sick. And so people don't wear masks because the mask itself gives this connotation of being dirty or contagious. And so you don't want to go out in public with people like kind of reacting to you like that, that you should stay home. So you will not wear a mask, maybe load up on like Sudafed and act as healthy as possible in public. Hmm. So it's basically performative hygiene. Yeah, I think a lot of our hygiene is performative. I was I was at a bar in the Netherlands once and they um, they had a, a little area between the men's room and the women's room where uh, you could see if the person in the other bathroom was washing their hands or not. And I thought that was a fantastic way to get people to, to wash their hands because, you know, as my earlier study uh, example indicated, people will bypass that really expected part of hygiene uh, but if they think that another person might be, you know, watching their performance of hygiene, they'll be much more likely uh, uh, to participate in it. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, that's pretty cool. All right. So, um, in your opinion, why do some people like gross things? And uh, maybe this is something that you might find gross that I find interesting. I actually enjoy watching pimple popping videos. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> I find it. I find it satisfying. I don't know why. I find it so satisfying. I'm like when all the pus is squeezed out, I'm like, ah, I feel cleansed. I feel. I feel like a new person. And uh, yes, just as you're reacting right now, a lot of people were like, what is wrong with you, Sarah? Um, however, these sort of videos, they have a lot of views online and um, they're, they're quite popular. So could you shed some light as to why some people find gross things fascinating? Yeah, I mean, I think your example was really great and it, it gave the answer as well too. So the I find what you described super disgusting. <laughs> and while you were talking about it, I had a very clear mental image. And for me, it's gross. You know, the idea of the pus bubbling out, it makes me like nauseous. Uh, definitely don't want to think about it. I don't want to see it. I see like when, you know, on Reddit or whatever, I see that those communities are very popular. And I think they're popular for the reason that you indicated that some people don't perceive that as being gross or disgusting. They see it as kind of the opposite, like a kind of cleansing ritual, uh, that things are cleaner. It's, it's like that, you know, getting all the dirt out. There's in a documentary, um, that I saw years ago that I don't even remember what it was about. There was a, um, a woman who was married to, I believe, a male model, and she was talking about waxing his back and that he had this ingrown hair and she kind of popped the, the hair out and pulled it out and it was like a, a foot in... A, so you're reacting to this one, that's disgusting. <laughs> uh, she pulled it out and it was like a foot and a half long hair. And he's, she's telling the story in front of him and he's disgusted hearing about that. He's like, I'm supposed to be a model. Like, no one wants to hear about my foot long back hair. Uh, and then she pulled it out. And when she was describing why she re really enjoyed it, she was like, it was just like a cleansing experience. It was just like this thing that was in him that like I removed and it was like very like satisfying to have accomplished that. So I think it's, you know, she's she's reading it as, as something that um, is, is not disgusting. It is more aligned to being, to keeping yourself clean and accomplishing something rather than being gross. And I think like, honestly, like sexuality is also like a great example here because there's lots of things that people find uh, disgusting in terms of sex and sexuality that other people find like the, the height of eroticism and the height of enjoyment. 
And I think a lot of it is, is, you know, just like you, you perceive the thing, you perceive the thing, or you, you've had an interaction about something in, in a way that, that, um, makes it different from you, for you than for how other people experience it. And so, you know, like I, there's personally things that I think are, are pretty gnarly out there, but there's whole communities of people that, that that's like their, their number one thing to do. And I think it just speaks to that, even though disgust is, is a very, um, uh, general human experience is something that unites us as a species that how we do discuss and how it manifests in like day-to-day interactions can have a ton of variability hmm. okay so you know you mentioned earlier about the mass and you wouldn't be surprised if um aspects of this pandemic will translate into the future and how we view ourselves so in your opinion what we do today as humans do you think in the future, looking forward, um, they will look back and be like, what the heck is wrong with them? Like you mentioned the cigarette butts uh, and all that. Is there anything else that you think we do today that in the future they'll say, what was wrong with them? I think there's many things that 20 or 30 years from now, we will look back on and think that like this time period was very gross. And I think you're starting to see some of them emerge now as well too. So the big thing, for, one for me growing up was that Smoking was totally normative. Uh, lots of people smoked. Um, actors were like smoking still. It was a signified that you were cool as a guy. Um, and smoking slowly but surely is becoming seen as more and more gross and more and more disgusting. They're getting smokers are pushed to smaller and smaller public spaces to the point where you know it's it's not impossible to imagine that smokers will just disappear from public spaces and if you want to smoke you will be smoking in your private residence and the smoke outside will be seen as something as is disgusting and offensive to other people i think i would expect that that process uh would probably complete in the future and the only thing that might save smokers is the broad adoption of people smoking marijuana outside which i think has a different connotation the other thing that i think that will be big is like the amount of sugar that we consume and our fast food diet. Um, You know, people are already talking like this now, like going to McDonald's once a week, that's gross, or going to McDonald's like twice for breakfast is gross, or eating like three quarter pounders at one time, that that's gross. Uh, I mean, personally, I I find like, like if it was healthy, I would totally eat McDonald's. It's, it's, uh, it tastes good to me. But I think there's, there's a lot of people who react to that as gross. Like if you sat down in a public venue and you drank like a 72 ounce Coca-Cola in front of people, that there's people in that room already who would think that that's gross. And they think it's gross because what you're doing is unhealthy, uh, that you're gross for doing it. Like they imagine other things about how you might live your life or what your health might be like. So I'd expect to see that develop more in the future. And then there's some interesting things about our potential diet in the future as well. There's more conversation about lab-grown meat, and there's more conversation about eating insects as sources of protein. So we think of eating insects as super gross now. Uh, 20 or 30 years in the future, it's, it's a very cheap, readily accessible form of protein. If we're eating that broadly in the future, we might look back and think like, how did anyone think that eating a cricket burger was gross? It's like one of my favorite foods. (laughs) And similarly, if we move to lab-grown meat, we might think that it was highly disgusting that we ever killed living animals to to eat their flesh, basically. That, That that is, we may as well have been like cavemen for behaving in that way how could you ever kill a cow cows are so cute etc etc uh and the the best meat is from from a laboratory somewhere 
Interesting. It's funny that you mentioned insects because um, just before I got on this call, I was reading about uh, recipes for how to cook cicadas. I saw that one. Yeah, I saw that one. So, yeah, with the big, I mean, they're just, it is interesting because they're every 17 years, they're just hanging out there and it's a ton of, uh, it's high protein, low fat. And they do eat insects in many, many cultures on the planet. And I've had insects before and they taste just fine as well, too. Yes, they do. Um, in Nigeria, we also eat um, termites in the raining season, and it tastes kind of like popcorn. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get past that, that first like revulsion impulse of like, I don't want to eat an insect. And then there's, I think at the, the Montreal, I want to say botanical gardens, they have ice cream with insects on them. And it's like, you try it, it just tastes like anything else. And when you think about it, it's no less gross than eating a lobster, which is just basically like a big sea spider. That's true. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, is there anything else about uh, the science of growth that you think we should know? I don't think so. I think we kind of covered covered everything. I think one of the interesting things that I, I kind of mentioned already that it's not just about what's gross, but what's what's kind of elite and highly cultivated. And, and that's one of the things that when we think about gross, we ought, we think about um, a lot of time what, what people who we think are gross are doing, but in a way that those people have already been kind of uh, stigmatized or they're, they're suffering some, some form of social exclusion. I would just emphasize again that there's lots of things that are, are high or marked as high class or seen as sophisticated that if you were viewing them as a neutral observer, they would seem just as gross as, as anything else. Um, and the fact that they aren't gross is, the is because it's elite and kind of privileged people that are doing those things. Hmm. So not, not just, how will I say, not just the grossness of it, but I guess who is also performing that act of grossness? Is it necessarily seen as like a, a form of rebellion, so to say? Yeah, well, it, it's more like, you know, if you think about something like meat, like there's lots of parts of an animal that we think are gross now, like like the vital organs, basically, like people by and large don't eat them anymore. But if you're you're talking about high end French cuisine, um, people will eat and enjoy and value those those parts of the animal, like pate being a really obvious one. Um, and part of that is because those those pieces of the animal they're they're few in number and they're very exclusive and they're labor intensive so what makes uh, a liver gross for us now is the idea of eating like a liver with like a, a very strong taste to it but the idea of what made pate something that's desirable is the fact that you know if i'm a nobleman i'm the only one around who could even have it like it's marked as being special because uh my social caste my social position makes me special ergo the things that i do uh, they become special as well too. And grossness can work in the same way that we mark some people as being uh, disadvantaged or different or excluded. And it's not necessarily the things that those people do that are gross, but we've marked them as different and other. So their practices are different and other. And so we re react to that in a social way, um, which is more about how we, we distance them as other people than it is about what they are doing or not doing. Hmm. I had kangaroo pate a few years ago. Would that make me an elite? Maybe, maybe. I mean, in a in a sense, you know, like you're. It sounds like you're well traveled and you have a broad palate. So in many <laughs> ways, like yeah, that that's compared to like your 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 average person. It sounds like you're you're at least like an elite for a foodie. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine what what kangaroo pate would be like. I've only had pate once. I felt very bad about it, but it did taste very good. Oh, okay, that's fair. It it tasted okay. Um. 
didn't really have any flavor to it. It was very soft. Uh, but I was like, you know what? I'll try it for the first time. Yeah. And it was good. Yeah. Nice. All right, cool. So um, thank you so much for taking your time being here. Um, this was a very interesting interview and I learned a lot. And uh, here's a bit of gross trivia for those uh, listening. Apparently, the ancient Romans used powdered mouse brains as toothpaste, which I find absolutely repulsive. And I am so happy that I live in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> so thank, thank you very much for your time. And for the Saltwire Network, I'm Sarah Poco. See you next time, guys.